Hey folks, welcome to another edition of the Electables podcast. I am Doug Thornell, and as always, I'm joined by my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod. Adrian, how you doing? How's Arkansas? Good morning. Um, here in Arkansas, everything is great. There's a lot of space. There's a lot of people outside, um, but keeping a social distance. Um, doing recreational activities, biking, hiking, running. So I got to say, it's not a bad place to be if you're going to be quarantined. It's also a great time to have our uh, special guest, Jesse Ferguson, who is a longtime, well-known, and deeply respected Democratic strategist that Adrian and I have both worked with uh, and alongside of for years. Uh, Jesse advises a number of organizations, including uh, the Navigator uh, Research Outfit that has been probably the leader in monitoring public opinion as it relates to the coronavirus. Uh, They're now up with daily tracking polls. So, Jesse, thank you so much for coming on The Electables. It's uh, amazing to have you. Uh, So glad to be with you guys. And uh, I like that you introduced each other as partners in crime because you should at some point, you know, tell your audience a little bit more about the criming. You know, to to our listeners, you can always rely on Jesse to come up with a good one-liner. He's very good at a quick retort, a quick comeback. And you still have that sarcasm, Jesse. (laughs) It's actually my only redeemable skill. So um, thanks, Adrian. Not true. Not true. Um, Well, Jesse, we are so happy to have you here today um, for a lot of reasons, but not only because you're an experienced campaigner and uh, democratic strategist, but because you're also doing a lot of work, very interesting, interesting work in the polling space when it comes to how the public is perceiving um, their government's handling of the COVID-19 virus. So, Jesse, I just want to kick it off. Can you sort of talk through a little bit about the project that you've been working on um, that you advise on and give us some top line thoughts on how COVID-19 is playing out politically? Sure. Happy to do it. Um, So Navigator Research was started about two and a half years ago to do monthly research to help progressives find the right words, phrases, language, and messages uh, to combat conservatives and Donald Trump in this new era. And in light of coronavirus, the team, which is a combination of Global Strategy Group and GBAO, along with a number of other progressive leaders. Uh, We transitioned to daily tracking to really be able to monitor how this situation is changing and how people are perceiving it. Um, Right now, I think the short, short version, and I'm I'm not a pollster, I'm just an overgrown political hack like you two, is they are deeply, deeply concerned about themselves and people they know becoming infected. Not a surprise. It's a very real concern, and we're looking at about in the 80% of a country that is concerned about it. And a rising share, now 69%, who are concerned about what Donald Trump is doing when it comes to 
the potential health implications of the virus. At the same time, uh, people, only 10% of people, someone who's been infected yet, uh, I obviously as a human being hope that never rises, but as somebody who can listen to a scientist and read the newspaper, I think it's reasonable to expect it sadly will. And then I think there's growing concern with now 56% of the country saying they're worried that Donald Trump has not done what's necessary to make our healthcare system work. That's the uh, hospital equipment, ventilators, beds, masks, and that he overrules the advice of medical experts. All of this taken together, uh, I think, has sort of two realities. One, his approval numbers on corona, as you may have heard, are actually higher than they are on than, than people's overall approval of him. Not dramatically higher, but they are higher. And I get the question a lot, why is that true? And I think a big part of it is we see about 25% of Democrats who aren't going to vote for him. They don't like him. And if you ask them whether they approve of his work on corona, they want to say yes, because we want him to succeed as much as we can't stand him. Uh, it is more aspiration than actual approval. At the same time, we see continuing evidence, and we see this in Navigator and some other work that I've done, that the fundamental character flaws that people believe exist about Donald Trump, that he's selfish, that he's dishonest, that he's chaotic, are now coming with consequences. People have been talking about those flaws for years. You always hear it in focus groups. But now there's real-world tangible consequences to those fundamental character flaws. And that's why the most effective critiques of Trump typically center around his unwillingness to prepare for the pandemic, cutting the CDC, cutting pandemic response, et cetera. And then his um, you know, chaotic nature now and egotistical nature now, where he overrules scientists, medical professionals, and just, just you know, thinks he knows better and he's the best, the biggest brain. And those are the two things that are really sticking in the in the craw of uh, a growing number of uh, Americans. So, so Jesse, um, if you were advising, um, you know, a Democrat leader in Congress, how would you how would you guide them through talking about this issue so it does not appear to be uh, overly partisan, but uh, an actual honest critique of the president's handling of the situation and 
So, you know, I think it's a fine line, right, of of criticizing the president, but doing it in a way that appears as though that it's almost constructive rather than it's someone trying to score political points. So I'm just curious in, in, in what your guidance would be to um, Democrats in Congress uh, or Joe Biden's campaign in terms of uh, talking about how Trump is handling this. Yeah, and I think the Biden campaign is a little bit different, but I think for members of Congress, the the first thing is they've got to ground themselves in the very real fear and anxiety that people are feeling. And all too often, you know, they go to discussing some programmatic solution or some long-term solution without starting from the fact that 80% of of the country is worried they're going to get this darn thing. And uh, and by the way, that extends to 72% of Republicans, um, 76% in rural America. I mean, it's not, it is not a narrow audience that's worried about that. And, you know, 69% of the country believes that there won't be, or is concerned that there won't be hospital availability if they do get it. My point being, they've got to start with that very real fear and anxiety that people are feeling and meet voters where they are on this. And then I think for three years, people have joked that in the Trump era, facts don't matter. One thing that has happened now is uh, facts are sexy again. Um, if, if, to some people, I guess. The, um, there is a very fact-based critique to make of Donald Trump in the interests of getting him to do a better job. And when South Korea had tested 274,000 people and we had only tested 40,000 people in the same amount of time, and our country is five times bigger than theirs, that's the type of fact-based critique that immediately raises questions about his lack of preparation and his failed response. And that's where, that's where we can and should uh, be making our argument. So, Jesse, sort of going forward over the next six months or so, how do you think this virus and the way Trump has mishandled this, which, of course, according to your polling and, frankly, I think according to, you know, the conversations that we're having with our family and friends, all of whom are very nervous and worried um, about the administration and the way they're handling this, how do you think this plays out in November? You know, I think it's a little too soon to tell, obviously. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly how this is going to, you know, I'm not an infectious disease specialist. I wouldn't even play one on You're TV, not? but like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, but like, if this plays out um, the way most people are sort of expecting it to, then I think it's going to become the dominant 
question around the election. Um, and it's going to be the fundamental indictment of Donald Trump. Now, as, as I sort of said before, up till now, a lot of his shenanigans haven't come with consequences. And now, sadly, it does. And I think it juxtaposes perfectly with Joe Biden as a steady leader, stable leader, rather than chaotic and erratic, as somebody who's actually committed to the public and public service rather than somebody who's self-interested, and as somebody who listens to experts and scientists and, you know, lives in reality versus Trump living in his own, you know, world of alternative facts and alternative reality where he actually does think that he's a specialist, uh, a medical specialist in these kind of issues and that he knows better than the people who are actually trained. So, yeah, I, you know, I think the election is going to, the election can't not be about this. Um, right. Whether we think it should or shouldn't, it will be. And how do you, Jesse, have you guys done any digging into how this is playing with independents, how it's playing with suburban voters? Um, you know, that very, those sets of swing voters that we talk a lot about in terms of who's going to decide this election? Yeah, I mean, I think that with independents, um, you know, it's interesting when you look at his uh, uptick in Trump's approval on coronavirus, which did happen, uh, the uptick came almost entirely from Democrats. And among independents, he's actually right back where he was when he started. Um, he's not really made any gains with independence as of yet. Um, so I think, you know, to, to your point, I think those suburban communities are sadly the ones that are going to be the most hardly hit, hard hit by this, um, pandemic. It's going to hit urban communities and suburban communities, but the suburban ones are where more of the swing voters live. And that's going to, again, make it kind of even more front and center in the election. And, and I think one, one part we haven't talked about about this, but it's critically important, the virus doesn't only impact the people who get infected or the people who worry they get, they're going to get infected. It impacts 3.3 million people who filed for unemployment insurance this last week alone. It impacts millions of Americans who are worried about how they're going to care for uh, older uh, parents or grandparents. Millions more who are trying to figure out child care in, a, in this world. So there's no one left in the entire country who isn't touched in some way or another by the fallout from this and the majority of the country don't think that Donald Trump did nearly enough to prepare for it. Jesse, how much in, and, and obviously none of us are pollsters, but we all spend a lot of time trying to digest 
polls. Um, but I one one interesting section in your most recent uh, poll uh, goes through characteristics or of the president and asking voters whether they uh, think it applies to Trump. Um, and I was struck by <clears throat> on questions of you know uh, you test the word unprepared and fifty nine percent say it applies to the president. Irresponsible is fifty percent to forty three. Um, you have. Um, erratic at 51 to 36, chaotic, 53, 37. We could go through a list of others. But how does that square with the fact that these these are obviously um, not great traits or characteristics to have, but at the same time, he still is, a, you know, right around um, uh, your poll, it's 49, 49 of approval rating and some other polls. Uh, he's higher than that. Is there a lagging indicator between what the overall approval number versus what we're actually seeing people believe about this president? I I, I think so. I mean, everything we've all seen for throughout this presidency would indicate there is, um, because I think um, it. People may once people make up their mind that someone is unprepared, chaotic, erratic, and not competent, they may not yet have come around to saying that they disapprove, but they'll get there. They'll get there eventually. You're not going to approve of the job someone's doing if you believe it to be chaotic, incompetent, erratic, and dishonest. So I think you're 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 dead on, Doug. Um, and then I think the other piece is the approval question includes people who don't want to disapprove because it looks like they don't want to say they disapprove because it looks like they're rooting for him to fail. And and emotionally, no one wants that right now, given the costs of you know given what the cost. Uh, can be. So I think you're right on. It's a the the legs of the stool are wobbly. Coming, yeah. I mean, I would even go beyond wobbling, I and mean, they're falling apart. Um, right. When it comes to how he's handling this, and right. that's before the worst of it has probably hit. Sadly. Right. And and Jesse, have you guys done any research into? I mean, I'm not. This may sound like a silly question, but have you guys done any, any research into how people are feeling about Fauci and some of the other leaders in this um, pandemic who are um, standing with Trump, who are working with Trump? Like, if you, I guess the, the question is like, have you done any research into Trump versus other people who are leading this effort? to show contrast between the way people think Trump's handling this or the way, for example, Fauci is handling this, or do you people generally clump them all under the same umbrella in terms of the way the administration is handling this pandemic? I haven't seen We haven't done that with Navigator. I haven't seen that in my other work. So I don't have a, 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 a data-based answer for you. In, intuitively, I think... Um, 
I don't know what percent of the country actually knows who Fauci is. You know, all, all of us do. But I think what it's, it's laddering up to is the concern that you do see in everyone's data that he overrides the advice of medical experts um, and doesn't listen to scientists and thinks he knows best. And you're seeing that play out in the debate about his ridiculous, you know, Easter promise uh, where he said he was going to, you know, reopen the government no matter what the consequences. Um, you're seeing that play out where people are, are, where that debate is really fundamentally about whether Trump will listen to experts and scientists or whether, you know, America's now a, a TV show and, and, the, and the, the subject line is Trump knows best, you know, and he knows better than, than everyone else. Trump really seems to be playing this playing a short game here and he uh, I think one of the biggest you know he's made a lot of mistakes uh throughout this process but you can go back to two three weeks ago with how he didn't manage the public's expectations well um you know that was when you guys remember when there were only 15 cases in the country and he said sooner or later there's only going to be zero that's that number's going to drop right he did not We've we've all done crisis management for clients, and uh, you know one of the things that you have to do is manage expectations well, and most importantly, be straightforward and honest with them. And I think two contrasting uh, leaders in this moment: Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, how he has handled this situation, how he has conducted himself in press conferences, uh, versus the president of the United States. Jesse, talk to us a little bit about that. I know you've been, I imagine you've been watching the Cuomo press conferences. There's clearly just a totally different approach here um, by these two leaders. Yeah, as I I never thought thought I'd I'd utter the words, but, uh, you know, Cuomo is my president. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I I think there's a real clear distinction between the way they're handling it and and to your point Doug part of it is about competent response and part of it is about telling the truth about what to expect and Trump promising he had it under control he had it contained as you said you know it would be at zero um what it does is it just fundamentally invalidates you know, when he boasts now about what he's trying to do to solve the problem, because everyone knows he was full of BS from the get-go. And it and it goes back to, you know, not to sound like a broken record, but to his character flaw that he couldn't admit that things could get worse. And that's the most insidious part here. It's not just that he lied because he didn't know better. It's that he lied because his narcissism won't let him admit that something could go wrong. The danger in that Jesse, is, is just... No, go ahead. Sorry, I think you just hit the, the nail on the head. It's because of his narcissism. That's something 
Jesse, that we talked a lot about, that we focused on a lot in the 2016 campaign when we both worked for Hillary, and we we really focused on highlighting the fact that he truly is a narcissist. He has narcissistic behavior. He has tendencies that come with being a narcissist, and one of those is he can't he cannot accept failure. He cannot accept that he might be um, doing something wrong or that somebody might be doing something better than him. And I think every day that he sees Andrew Cuomo um, effectively leading press conferences, reassuring a city that's truly under a state of panic right now for good reason, um, reassuring the city of New York, the state of New York, that we're going to get through this. Here's what I'm working on. Um, blatantly calling out the administration for their failures to provide ventilators, to provide funding, uh, to provide the resources New Yorkers need to combat this pandemic. I think every day he sees that, it plays into his narcissistic behavior and personality, and it makes him go even crazier. Um, and and that's something that, you know, we tried to use Hillary on the debate stage in 2016. I mean, you know, we consulted with behavior specialists, with um, psychologists who sort of, you know, talked us through, here's how you can basically provoke somebody who is bipolar, somebody who has narcissistic behavior. Um, but now we're seeing, unfortunately, the downside of that. And he's not able to lead right. this country effectively. He's not able to govern effectively and to get us through this pandemic. And it's got to be just killing him to see Cuomo, um, to, to, to see so many people look at him as a trustworthy source throughout this. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think that... Well, but I think... Because Cuomo... You think what? Oh, I was just I was just going to add one thing to what you said, Adrian, which is, I, and I agree with all of it, but I think he's been, you know, the narcissism has dominated his last three years, but when it was about him having the biggest inauguration crowd size in history, it was like sad that that mattered to him, but it had no consequences. Now his unwillingness to be straight with people about how bad this was going to get led to more infections, led to slower testing, led to, you know, healthcare workers without masks. And that's, the trade hasn't changed, but the costs of it has. Anyway, just, I, I agree with you, but I, I think that the change over time is dramatic. Sorry to cut you off. And I wanted to ask you sort of on that note, um, with Cuomo sort of being the um, effectively the, the counter voice to Trump, even though I know that he's not intending to be that, but that's how he's being perceived. You know, his press conferences um, are carried live on national television, then Trump's press conferences are carried live on national television. Um, do you think that this is impacting Biden in any way, or do you think that Biden is doing the right thing by sort of laying back, occasionally doing an, an interview um, and letting the people who are currently in elected office um, carry the weight on this and be the ones to be the primary voice of, of reason and, and rationale when it comes to combating this pandemic? I mean, I, I generally do. Um, you know, I think that the imperative for the Biden campaign is to pick his moments. I don't think he can engage each and every day in this back and forth. He's not in charge of governing it like Cuomo is. Um, so I think picking his spots and picking his moments 
where he can demonstrate competence and leadership, where he can pass that sort of threshold test that right now Donald Trump has failed on, where people see him as able to be president and where people see him as listening to, you know, the experts listening to the Ron Plains of the world. Um, and that's where I would really focus my time rather than trying to respond each and every day to, you know, the latest rantings or, or tweetings of, uh, of Donald Trump. Jesse, I want to uh, uh, ask you a question that's not completely related to coronavirus, but there's probably some overlap. It's interesting. I'm looking at your polling again from uh, most recently today. That's Friday, the 27th of March. And they're testing, um, you know, they're doing uh, favorable ratings for uh, individuals and organizations. And Nancy Pelosi is now at 41% approval. And uh, for folks who have been like all three of us working in politics, particularly on the House side for many years, she had been someone who had been demonized by the Republicans for years and years and spent countless tens of millions of dollars against her. And if you look at her uh, approval rating um, back in just November of 2018, it was 28 percent. And we've seen a steady rise since then. And in fact, now Mitch McConnell is the one. I mean, he's at 28 percent favorable rating, 44 percent upside down. So um, talk to us a little bit about um, th- uh, the uh, Speaker Pelosi's uh, public image improvement and then, two, a little bit about McConnell and how he can play um, a, a, in how Democrats should talk about McConnell uh, in upcoming campaigns. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're, you're very much onto something there, Doug. I think... As usual, um, I think her numbers have upticked really for two reasons. One, she has shown what we all know to be true, that she is a consummate speaker, leader, able to get things done. And frankly, there's been no more successful foil to Donald Trump than Nancy Pelosi. He, she is literally everything he is not. Attentive, hardworking, smart, gets things done. Um, A woman, she is the antithesis of him. It drives him crazy. And she has outmaneuvered him on almost every issue since she uh, became speaker again. And I think, you know, so I think some voters are excited about her and other voters, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And the fact that she is such a successful foil to Donald Trump makes them rally against her, or rally around her. I mean, I saw something the other day where the Republicans said they want to make the 2020 congressional races about her again. And it was sort of like, you know, Good luck making fetch happen. It's just the, the the numbers aren't there, and the the message doesn't work anymore. Um, to your question about 
McConnell, I actually think he's going to be a real weight around the ankles of several of the swing state senators, Gardner particularly, Collins, uh, potentially others, where McConnell has come to represent, if Trump represents everything that's wrong with someone's character, McConnell represents everything that's wrong with Washington. The corruption, the special interests, the absolute absolute pursuit of power. And for a lot of years, he was able to sort of stay out of the public eye, I think. You know, I don't think anything about him as a person has changed. But he stayed out of the public eye for a lot of years and wasn't a real positive or negative for Republicans. But that's changed, and the scrutiny is on him now. People are asking questions about the dealings he's making with the administration, the dealings he's making with his wife's businesses, the money he's taking from the drug companies, et cetera. And now Susan Collins and Cory Gardner have to answer a question, which is all too familiar to those of us who uh, worked on the House side. They have to answer the question of whether they're going to vote for him to continue to be a Republican leader if they get reelected. And that is not an easy question to answer if you are a Republican in a swing state when his numbers are as bad as they are. Well, Jesse, I know we're about to run out of time, but I just want to ask you, as somebody who is based in Brooklyn, how do things feel there right now? Are you seeing people, um, you know, take the social distancing seriously? Are people mostly staying in their houses? Um, how, what's the vibe there in New York? Yeah, you know, I, I, um, the little bit that I have seen, I think people are taking it seriously, but I'm also taking it seriously, which means in a week. So I don't have a fantastic read on the vibe of the rest of the city, uh, as I am taking, uh, I'm taking my social distancing advice from, Anthony Fauci and Andrew Cuomo and not from Donald Trump. So, um, you know, I think things are going to get, you know, unfortunately get worse. I, I don't know if folks saw, but I would, I would recommend watching about a five-minute video that the New York Times has of the head of an emergency room in Queens kind of walking through a day in the life of an ER right now and talking about the patients they're seeing, the shortages they're facing on ventilators and on masks, wearing the same masks for days after days. You have hospital uh, you have nurses that are literally wearing uh, garbage bags because they don't have gowns anymore. They don't have protect, you know, personal protective gowns, so they're using garbage bags. Um, so I think it's going to get you know, it's it's very real and very frightening for people. Um, but I don't have a wonderful read on the vibe, but that's mostly by my own choice because I've not been uh, going around and vibing too much lately. 
Hey, Jesse, I just want to ask you one last question. And, and uh, what are your pollsters or what are your pollsters saying right now? How has in terms of how the current situation has impacted their ability to poll or has it or has it made it better because there are more people at home for landlines? Um, I'm just curious. Have you gotten any feedback from the from, you know, the guys from the folks at GSG and others? Uh, so I, I may have been from others, not from other projects I'm involved in and not and not Navigator, but um, I, I think it's a really interesting question, actually, Doug, like how has campaigning changed in this corona era? And one of the changes is response rates are up. People are more willing to take a survey. Uh, that could be a combination of two things. One, they may be at home, whether it's because they're, you know, working from home or sadly they've been laid off. Um, and then two, because I think people feel strongly and have opinions. And, you know, when, when, when an issue is as close to home as this is, they have thoughts they want to they want to share and they're more willing to share it uh, than they were, you know, six months ago when they were getting called about an obscure issue and didn't have time and patience to talk about it. And I think you're seeing uh, a bunch of the digital uh, advertising programs I'm involved in. You're seeing changes in screen time and online engagement in, you know, particularly in behavior among, you know, cord cutters real uh, implications on the media ecosystem to the adjustments in life that folks are making uh, in this coronavirus era. And I think one of the real questions will be, uh, on the back end of all of this, how much, how much goes back to normal? Um, are people getting more comfortable with teleworking? And maybe instead of going to the office five days a week, they're going to the office three days a week uh, and teleworking because they spent six months doing that and they got comfortable doing it. So I think there could be real mm -hmm. changes in how we reach people uh, as by virtue of this sort of forced um, situation that, that that coronavirus brings, you know, brings to us. Yep. Jesse, anything else we should be looking out for? In terms of where the public, or any, in terms of where you think, uh, in terms of the public and what they're thinking about this? I, I think there's, um, you know, a number of folks that have really started to, to litigate the, case against Trump around coronavirus, um, unite the country. Joe Biden's super PAC went on air with a real powerful indictment of him and critically made clear that, you know, crises come to every president. It's not Trump's fault that we have a virus here. It's Trump's fault that he made it worse. He made it worse than it should have been, worse than it could have been. And, and, you know, other priorities, USA has been running some content. There's a great suite of 
digital advertising that Acronym has been doing, um, really trying to take Trump's words and make sure that the that that Americans in swing and battleground states see it. And I think that is only going to expand uh, in the weeks and months ahead. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us today. If folks want to follow you, tell us how, or tell tell our listeners how they can follow you on social media. Oh, we we, we live in a social media age. I, sh- I should have plugged it multiple times, right? Um, <laughs> we'll be no, plugging look, it for I, you too. Oh, that's. Yeah, I, I always liked you more than Doug. Um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, it's um, on Twitter. You can follow me. It's Jesse F. Ferguson. And I would also recommend to folks, since we did talk uh, a lot about Navigator Research, uh, to go to our website at navigatorresearch.org. You can sign up. You can get the daily tracking polls and the whole nine yards. Uh, but uh, follow me on Twitter, Jesse F. Ferguson, and uh, you'll hear about projects I'm involved in. You'll also hear me tweet my thoughts and also tweet my feelings, which I do pretty <laughs> consistently throughout the day. My yeah, Jesse is feelings, great to follow on Twitter. I was uh, tweeting a little bit earlier today about how I bought fake Newtons for the first time in like 20 years. And my theory behind it is that if cockroaches can survive a nuclear blast, then I've decided fake Newtons can survive a pandemic. It's not based on anything. It's quite Trumpian. But uh, I like that I theory. That that's, I'm just going with it. I like it. I like it. Just like our uh, president. Just going with it. Yeah, exactly. It's all going uh, to wash over. Um, Jesse Ferguson, um, thank you so much for joining the Electables podcast. This has been great. You're welcome on any time. And, and uh, stay safe and healthy out there. Thank you. Thank yep, you, guys. Safe, it was a ton of fun. You all, too. So for my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod. Adrian, it was great hearing your voice. I hope you're well there and well out there in Arkansas. Um, this is Doug Thornell, and this has been The Electables, and we will catch you next time. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. <laughs>